the Hollywood Renaissance Limited podcast series with Rita Award winner and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Kennedy Ryan. Today, our special guests are best-selling author of Let Me Love You, Alexandria House, and host Crystal Forte of The Melanated Reader. Stick around till the end. After the conversation, today's episode features an excerpt from the Real audiobook, which includes a special musical performance. Real is a standalone contemporary love story celebrating all the hues of Hollywood, old and new. With that, let's get this conversation started. Hello, this is Crystal, Melanated Reader, and I am so excited to present to you all none other than Miss Kennedy Ryan, who has her latest out, Real. Kennedy Ryan is a Reader Award winner and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and she consistently delivers emotionally evocative, thought-provoking stories like Queen Move, Long Shot, and now the highly anticipated Real, which launches her groundbreaking Hollywood Renaissance series. So Real takes place in the era known for staples like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey. What made you want to focus on this era? Kennedy? You know, um, I, I, I have been, well, first of all, I just love that era. I always have. Like, you know, when you're talking about um, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, um, Louis Armstrong, you know, uh, obviously Billie Holiday. I love that era. I love the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. And so as I started, I started looking around and I noticed that there was this reaching back, especially with Black creatives. And what I'm seeing is this incredible surge of creativity and production, especially in Black Hollywood. Um, and a lot of the stories are reaching back. Like if you look at Lovecraft Country, um, that reaches back to like the 40s and the 50s. Um, if you look at um, Sylvie's Love on Amazon, which was one of my favorites last year, that reaches back to the 50s. And um, also looking at jazz, and just looking at all of uh, One Night in Miami, which reaches back to the 60s, um, Judas and the Black Messiah, United States versus Billie Holiday. Like if you look at kind of the body of work that Black people have been, Black creatives have been producing over the last year or so, so much of it is reaching back to tell our stories, really reclaiming our stories, telling our stories through our voices, unfiltered and framed by our lens. So what I was seeing was just kind of this um, unprecedented, not only creativity, but also agency, meaning we are the ones who are helming our stories. We are the directors. We are the showrunners. We are the producers. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah just made history as the first all-Black team of producers to be nominated for an Oscar. So when I, when I saw all of these things kind of coming together, that surge of energy reminded me so much of, honestly, the Harlem Renaissance, that we haven't seen this this level of production and creative energy since the Harlem Renaissance. And so I started the way my mind is set up, <laughs> you know, I, my wheels started kind of connecting those two parallel movements. And um, that's when I started thinking about Cannon, who is the hero, and he's a director, he's a black director in Hollywood contemporary right now. And he comes across this uh, lost, I'll call it a lost life story of a jazz and blues singer from the 30s and the 40s. And her fictional name, of course, is Desi. And she's a composite of women like Bessie Smith, 
Ma Rainey, Billie Holiday, Adelaide Hall, you know, figures from that era who some of them are household names, but someone like Adelaide Hall, like I polled read, some of my readers and they had no idea who she was. And Adelaide Hall, it, she holds the Guinness Book of World Records for, she's in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most enduring career as an entertainment in history, eight decades. She pioneered scatting. You know, like, you know, so it's like, how do we how do we not know some of these people who have in such significant ways shaped the cultural landscape of America and beyond? Like we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the blues. We wouldn't have jazz. We have the roots of hip hop. We have the roots of R&B. We have the roots of rock and roll all in these people. And so for so many of their contributions to go unacknowledged and unsung, it's it's a travesty. And so I kind of created Desi Blue, who is this kind of amalgamation of these characters, of these historical figures. And if you remember the movie um, Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, yeah. you know, from the 90s with Halle, with Halle yeah. Berry, it's kind of like that. Like he does, he decides that he's going to do a biopic of her life and he starts looking for the right actress to play her. And that's where our heroine Neva comes in. She's an understudy on Broadway. Um, and he cast her as the lead as Desi Blue. And so that's kind of how it all came together. And I just kind of lost myself in that world. It's been, it's been amazing. It's been transfer. Honestly, it's been transformational for me as a writer, honestly. It, because it pushed pushed my limits a lot as far as story structure and research, <laughs> and um, I had no, I haven't written historical. This is not historical, but there's a definite historical vein, and I just loved it. I've, I've really loved it. And we love to see the stories. <laughs> Thank so, you. of course, you bringing out those stories that need to be told, right? Our stories just need to be told in all ways, right? And we're so excited to, that you have created this for us so that we can go on this journey with you. So my next question would be, okay, because we know that Kennedy Ryan is one of the staples in Black romance writing. Why do you think that it is so important to see that story portrayed through Black romance writing? You know, for me, I feel like, for one, I mean, obviously, Black love is amazing. And it's something that we need to see more of. I feel like there's so much focus. And not that, I mean, Black love is here always. But I feel like, especially in the space we're in now, there's so much focus on Black pain, on Black trauma, you know, and justifiably so, because there are things happening in the world that have to be addressed, that have to be given um, space so that we can address them. But I think that Black love and Black joy have to hold space in our cultural landscape. And I'm just honestly honored that I get to write in this space and that that I get to portray Black couples loving and aspiring um, because I, I, I tend to write very aspirationally, meaning I tend to write people who are like dreamers. You know, I, I understand that there are sometimes things, there are barriers that sometimes are specific to us, sometimes are just a part of life, but I'm gonna, I'm not gonna let that um, hold me back as far as what I'm gonna pursue, my goals, my dreams. And so I tend to write characters like that. It was a delight for me. This is really, this story, and, I, and my favorite thing to write is artists, poets, writers, singers, performers, 
you know, that's my favorite because that's who I am, you know? And so for me, that is such a natural extension of what I do. So for me, real was a combination of showing black love in a beautiful way. Also dreaming, you know, also artistry because he's a director and he's a writer and he's also a documentarian, um, loosely based on people like Ryan Coogler and like Spike Lee. Um, and then she is this actress who really, really just opens herself up to to sharing uh, storytelling with the audiences. And so all of those things kind of combined, it's just like kind of the perfect storm for me. And I also think that we're in a space where we need to understand each other better. We need to have our stories told our way authentically, that we get to present ourselves through our own voice and through our own lens. And as much as I can be a part of that uh, existing and emerging tradition, I want to be. Well, now we're going to bring in Mrs. Alexandria House, who is a true Southern girl who has an affinity for good banana pudding, neo-soul music, and tall black men in suits. When this music-loving fashionista is not shopping, she's writing steamy stories about real black love. Hey. Hey, girl. (laughs) I'm so excited to speak with you both based on the Black romance experience. Greetings, Miss House. How are you? I'm great. And I'm glad to be here. Glad to be talking to you, too. So what do you all think sets your writing apart from other writers or authors who are coming into the Black experience space? Oh, I think uh, what sets it apart is what sets anybody's work apart. Uh, My personal experience, my life experience, the way I view life, the way I view Black love or love at all. Me coming from the South and, you know, just the things I've seen and observed. I'm I'm a people watcher and I'm a natural researcher and um, just about anything can inspire me. So I think that's what makes it unique because I'm unique, I guess you could say. I like to, you know, infuse the humor and the steaminess and all of that's just me. So that's what you get. And I will, I want to ask you the same thing. Why is Black romance so important in your writing? Uh, because I feel like there, there's been a narrative push that, especially for Black women, that we aren't lovable, um, we aren't being loved, that Black men don't, you know, prefer not to be with us. And that's just not the the truth. So um, because I'm surrounded by Black love, so I I know it exists and it's beautiful. And representation is very important to me. So I just want to show what I know to be the truth, you know, um, in all facets of it. From Big South, who's a billionaire, to uh, Shu Mitchell, who works a factory job obsessively, <laughs> you know. So, you know, all, all the, the, the the tapestry of what Black love is, the, the complete canvas of it. So I just, I I love it. And, you know, you write what you know. This, this is what I know. I have a question. Is it okay if I ask a question? 
Of course. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> um, I I'm trying. I feel like you kind of burst on the scene like the, over the last few years, and you are now like a powerhouse in not just Black romance, but wow. in romance. You know, overall. At what point did you feel like, wow, like? Because when you go on Audible, I'm an audiophile. So I first yeah, encountered you in audiobooks. And that's really, I think you and I have taught, that's really the only way I read anymore is yeah, audio, right? <laughs> and so um, I think the first audiobook of yours I listened to, um, it was Big South and it was Jacoby because I love yeah. Jacoby as a narrator, anyway, Jacoby Dim. And when you mm-hmm. go on Audible, like you have thousands and thousands of reviews. How does it feel when you go somewhere like Audible? when you see thousands and thousands of reviews and you know that that's only a, you know, most people don't review. So that's really only a fraction of the people who have actually listened to your work and you've actually taken in your stories. Like, how did that feel? How did that impact you when you realize, oh my gosh, my work is reaching so many people? I'm still in shock. I'm I'm like, what is it? Well, we know I'm you're an incredible it. storyteller. I know what it is. You're an incredible storyteller. Uh, it can be overwhelming, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, but it's amazing. And I'm so happy. And um, I'm just glad that the stories resonate with people. I'm, yeah. I'm thrilled, you know, and I'm thrilled that I get to do what I love. Since people like it, I can continue right. to do what I love. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it's amazing. I, I go and look and I'm like, wow, so that many? Right. And I think, I mean, just hearkening back to what you were saying earlier about there being kind of this misconception that Black love is not flourishing or that, Mm -hmm. you know, Black women and Black men are not loving um, in a healthy, you know, amazing way. What it also says is there is an incredible appetite. For it, yes. you know, and that readers, yes. because you know, I I write interracial romance, I write black romance, I write I write all over, I write traditional, I write indie, you know, I do, mm-hmm. I publish through small press, and there is a thought, or there has been a thought, in especially in traditional publishing, that black romance wouldn't sell, or that there wasn't an mm-hmm. appetite for it, and you you and your success fly in the face of that, you know? And so I think that's amazing. And it's something that you've carved out. I am a big proponent of indie romance. You know, like I said, I I publish across all kinds of formats, but I'm a huge um, proponent of indie romance. And Mm -hmm. I know that there, I mean, I want to do well no matter what, you know, but there's a certain pride when you have carved out something for yourself and it does yes. well and it flourishes. Can you talk a little bit about that, about b- being an entrepreneur? Yes, I, I love the and um, the autonomy. Yes. Um, of being able to make the choices and being able to get feedback, but decide which, what, which feedback I'm going to apply. Right. And it, it's amazing. It is a wonderful feeling to go on Audible and see 4,000 reviews for Big Sal. That's amazing. Knowing that, knowing that while Tanter produced it, right. my audience and the story itself is yes. what pushed it. To yes, me. absolutely. So, I mean, I often say I'm one person, you know, right. I'm one person. I, I don't have a big machine behind me. I don't have a company pushing this stuff in front of everybody. People are right. finding it through word of mouth. And, and it's, you know, evidently, it's good enough to stand up, you know, <laughs> against traditionally published it books. It definitely is. And I think that's a huge misconception, too, is somehow people think that because it's indie, that it's somehow 
and this exists still in a lot of circles that it's somehow mm-hmm. inferior or that somehow it's yeah. not going to be as good. And I think that your success, the success, success of a lot of indie authors yeah. flies in the yeah. face of that. And honestly, I mean, I think that we have our ears to the ground, like with readers, yeah. you know, we know what they want. And we, one thing I love, you use the word autonomy. Um, I'm, I would use the word control because I'm a control freak. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm in therapy for it. <laughs> I am in some therapy, but I'm a control freak, you know? And so I think that we as indies, we have the flexibility to move, you know, easily. We can change things. We can change covers if we think they don't work. We can repackage things. We can, you know, we can change direction if we feel like, you know, the water's moving in a different way. And I love that. Yes, yes. I think that we are, we as readers are so connected to you all because you all have this gift of writing complex characters while most times giving the hard issues such as abuse or any kind of a addiction and anxiety and depression. You give those a, a great gas, a grasp for readers to see. So can y'all elaborate on how you continue to write these themes and connect with your readers and the importance of bringing these themes up in conversation? Well, f- for me, I, we're not a monolith, you know, there's, we're many, we're very uh, multifaceted. We all have individual stories and my desire is for, as many people as possible to pick up a book and be able to see themselves or their situation in it and to understand that they're not alone in that and, and that you can be damaged and still be loved. You don't have to be perfectly bandaged up and fixed for someone to love you or for you to love someone else. I think I come from definitely a very a similar place. I always say that I kind of write out of creative conviction. I think of storytelling. I say this all the time. I know it sounds precious and really writerly, but I see writing as a calling. You know, I don't just see it as a vocation. I believe I was put on the earth to write stories for impact. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm not someone who looks at trends like some of my friends are like, okay, stepbrothers are so hot right now. So I'm going to write stepbrothers or, you know, whatever the trend is. Um, I've never been someone who looked to the left or to the right for inspiration as far as what I should write. I figure out what I think I'm supposed to be talking about at that time. What I'm, you know, what is on my heart and what I think I could do justice in the context of of an epic love story. And for me, of course, we love selling books. You know, we love um, making a living. But th- to me, the, the biggest win is when someone, and this goes back to what Alexandria was saying, someone messages me and says, I saw myself. You know, um, when I wrote a book called Long Shot, which dealt with domestic abuse in a very, you know, real kind of raw way. Um, mm-hmm. I got so many messages from women who, I mean, women who said I left an abusive relationship after I, I read Longshot. I called my mom wow. and I hadn't talked to her in 15 years because I grew up in an abusive household and I didn't understand. Or, I mean, I've gotten these messages. Now I volunteer in a shelter because I read Longshot. There mm. is nothing for me that is greater than that. You know, like you sell and you, you know, you hit list and you do all of these amazing things. And I'm not going to say those things aren't great. But for me, that's the win. When I am writing a story that that those are the people I'm thinking about. Those are the responses mm-hmm. that are most important to me is how is this story going to connect with someone's real life? 
how is this going to show someone's journey that maybe hasn't been understood or been seen before? And so that is a driving force for me um, in storytelling. Mm -hmm. So how do y'all manage to collect your research for your books? Because I know with the real, we were talking about the the Ma Rainey and all, Bessie Smith and all of these historical figures. How do how do you process that, and how do you collect this research for your books? Well, um, for me, I I always tell people my creative process. I don't even start really writing until like sixty percent into the creative process. My background is journalism, and I think that really affects the way I research. I do a lot of interview. For real, I probably interviewed, <laughs> gosh, maybe twenty five people for real, and I usually do those interviews by Zoom. And so that I can focus on the conversations and not, you know, take a lot of notes. And so that's a big interview and human experience and real life experience. People who have actually walked um, the things that I'm writing is usually it's a, usually a huge part of informing what I write. And then, of course, books like I, I read a lot of books. <laughs> I read. Uh, gosh, I have I have the whole stack right here. Actually, I read Blues Legacies and Black Feminism by Angela Davis. I read Lady Sings the Blues, which is Billie Holiday's autobiography. I read Bright Boulevards, the story of Black Hollywood. Um, I read a book called Cafe Society. Of course, Cafe Society is the first um, nightclub of its kind in America that was desegregated. And it's also where Billie Holiday first sang Strange Fruit. Mm. You know, and so I, there was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot. I mean, there was, you know, me pulling out maps of Harlem from the 1930s and tracing Lenox Avenue and, you know, trying to figure out all the different historical aspects that kind of really populate this story. So there was, there was a lot. And after I do all those interviews, I go back and watch them. You know, and it kind of prepares me. It lays a groundwork. I do all of that before I even start writing. So I don't, I, you know, there's this thing with authors. Are you a plotter or are you a pantser? I've decided that I'm a finder because a lot of times I don't know very much. I know the general gist of the story. And it's not until I've done the interviews and I've done the research and I've read the books that I start to find the story. So I call myself a finder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I just have a natural curiosity about, about history too. And about really all things, you know, once I start digging into a subject, I just, I can't stop. And so I have to cut myself off because I'm like, at some point you actually have to write. <laughs> what about you, um, Alexandria House? With Big South, I was like, she had to have, she had to have watched several rap videos or the shows that come out about the artists <laughs> and that kind of thing. Well, part of it is um, I am, I too am a natural I guess a student of life, maybe. I, I like to research stuff. If I become obsessed with something, I, I, I become obsessed with it. And I don't even have to have a book in mind. I'll just research, 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 you know, and I just get fixated on things. And I love hip hop. I love music, period. I'm a music fanatic. And there's just some things I just knew because I had just naturally researched so much stuff. Um, I do talk to people, um, interview people. I also have this, I guess, gift where strangers tell me their life story, like in a grocery store. So <laughs> I have that to pull from. I was a nurse for years and uh, clients would, patients and clients would tell me things. And then I, I like to take classes. So like for what I'm working on now, 
I registered for a burlesque class. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. I mean, I've taken spirituality classes. I just, I, I just love to learn. So I take these classes so that I can have the terminology down for like, I'm working on this, my Roman U is an HBCU series. I, I graduated from the HBCU, but then I also um, talked to um, two of my children graduating from HBCUs. So I'm like, okay, so I'm trying to figure out what, what was different from my experience and their experience and what's changed and, you know, talk to me and trying to get, I really try to get a strong male point of view to things. And that's just, that's just what I do. I just do it on a daily basis. And so I just kind of like have an arsenal in my mind, I guess. Well, Alexandria, I heard that you were a big fan of Bessie Smith. Yes, I am. I, I'm a fan of that era, period, um, like like uh, Kennedy is. And I just love, I think what I love most about that era and the artists of that era is their tenacity and their determination yeah. and and their confidence yes. to step out and pursue their dreams in a time when we were still being oppressed, you know, right. in a lot of ways. And but when you watch their performances, there's so much joy and there's so much. They were just so good and so professional and just so beautiful and and very confident in who they were, whether it was their interactions with the crowd or even their private lives, their sexuality and all of that. I absolutely adore those errors um, from the fashion, the music, the performances and I'm a, I'm a feels person. And so anything from that era just gives me the feels. It just does. I'm just, oh, I just get goosebumps. I love it. And I would hope that what's going on now feels the same way because we still have, in a lot of ways, some oppression. We're still dealing with things. We're still witnessing a lot of really disturbing stuff happening to the Black community. But we still fight through it to create and even use that to create. So I think that that was, I absolutely adored listening to Real. I absolutely enjoyed it. It was an experience. It was a beautiful love story. I mean, I just loved it. I, I love Kennedy's mind anyway. So, you know. Me too. <laughs> it's, it's amongst those I'd like to borrow sometimes. Um, let's, let's trade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Mine's, my mind's pretty nasty, though. I don't know if you want to be in there. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting that you were saying that, um, Alexandria, because one of the things that for me was really big with writing this story is that uh, there was so much oppression. There was so much difficulty. And yet the things that Black people managed to do, like the things that they managed to accomplish. I mean, when you look at this era, I think I mentioned this earlier, it's like the blues, jazz, hip hop, every, Mm -hmm. most American music was birthed out of this era and from these people. Mm -hmm. And literally Mm -hmm. this country ran some of them off to places like Paris. You know, so many of them ended up living abroad because this is a country that saw their skin before they saw the value of their gift. And so it's really, it's really important. I think that we celebrate the people who did this, these things, because so many of them, we don't even, some of them, we don't even acknowledge. We don't even know. Like I was thinking, you know, we're talking about the twenties. There is James Prince. I'm trying to think of his last name. I'll think James Prince Johnson. I think I'll think of it later, but he is called the invisible pianist. He wrote the Charleston. 
You know, it's oh, like, man. how is it that we don't know that a black man wrote the Charleston and he died? Mm. He died so poor. His friends had to raise money for his funeral. And mm. you're like, <laughs> you know, everybody's doing the Charleston. You know, that's the, yeah. that's the anthem yeah. of the 20s. And so for mm-hmm. me, it's really important as we're writing about this era that we celebrate those people who have gone unsung and that we educate people on just who they owe so much of who we are and what we have mm-hmm. to do. This is not just black culture. This is culture. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. we shaped what's here. You know, the black, yes. leaders, black artists, they shaped the musical landscape, rock and roll, blues, jazz, everything mm-hmm. originated with us. And mm-hmm. I think that it's mm-hmm. really important that we realize, and you know, I was thinking about when in the same era, obviously I got really steeped in the history, but there's another figure, Frankie Manning, who was a dancer mm. who pioneered the Lindy Hop, which was then appropriated as the jitterbug. Oh, yeah. You know, this mm-hmm. man, were, while Fred Astaire, you know, his white counterparts like Fred Astaire went on to be wealthy and famous. He mm-hmm. was working in a post office for 40 years because of the mm-hmm. barriers that were thrown up in his career path. And it wasn't until he was in his 70s that he was even acknowledged. And you're like, wow. oh my gosh. You know, mm. and so I think we there are some figures who stand out. Josephine Baker, obviously, Billy yes, Holiday, yes. obviously, you know, yes. Bessie Smith. And we just got Ma Rainey, you know, Ma Rainey's. Yes. Yes. Have you seen that, mm-hmm. Alexander? Have you seen mm-hmm. that? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. mm. I mean, and I, and I love Ma Rainey. Yes. And Viola Davis killed that role. But I think also as as I was watching it, Alexandria, it goes back to what Mm -hmm. you were saying is there's this scene in that movie where she is so bent on like getting a soda, you know, and she's Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. you're going to get me my soda. Like she recognizes you are mining my gifts. You know, the the Mm -hmm. white producers, you are mining my gifts. You are exploiting my gifts. You're not paying me Mm -hmm. what I'm worth. If I can only have control of this one little thing, <laughs> I'm going, you're yeah. going to give me my soda. You know, you're going to, mm-hmm. there's so much that I don't have control of. I'm going to control as much as I can. And I just, I'm so grateful that now we have, we're at a place where we have the agency and the power for the directors yes. and the showrunners and the storytellers to be black. You know, so mm-hmm. that those stories mm-hmm. are told authentically. And then we have the power to actually negotiate, yes. and actually come to the table and make demands. And our, our talent is seen as talent now. Right. You know, and it's seen as our talent. Right. You know? Right. So. One of the saddest parts about for people who haven't seen Marini yet on Netflix, one of the saddest parts is um, Chadwick's character. You know, the whole time is going on thinking that this um, white producer, record executive is going to put him on, you know, Mm -hmm. and he basically ends up taking his song and paying him. I can't remember the exact amount, but it's like it's nothing. And then Mm -hmm. that song goes on to be like incredibly successful. You know, it's like that, though, that was the narrative. And it's like you're saying now, Alexandra, we're in a we're in a place where we can negotiate, where we can Mm -hmm. take control of our trajectory and of our stories and mm-hmm. you know and we can protect we can protect our intellectual intellectual property yes and we can protect our the brands and the platforms that right. we build right and that goes back to one of the i mean 
obviously like I queen move a book I did last year was through a small press and I have done mm-hmm. books through traditional publishers. I have a new series that I'm going to launch next year with a traditional pu- publishing partner, but I am, you know, I am in, you cut me and I'm going to believe indie romance because it's mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about. Maintaining control of your intellectual property, maintaining control of your brand, maintaining control and shaping the narrative of, mm-hmm. you know, of our stories and of what we're, of what we're saying in our voice. Um, yes. Incredibly definitely. important. Unapologetically. Unapologetically. <laughs> yes. And that's one thing I love about you, Alexandria, is you are so unapologetic in in your blackness. <laughs> I mean, I think, you oh, know, yeah. you know yeah. and it's like. I'm black and it's black, black, black. black, 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 black. <laughs> I'm black, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. But I think it's also <laughs> like the thing that I love is that you're so unapologetically black, but everybody I see people who are not black, who love your mm-hmm. stories, you know, who, yeah. and I think yeah. that also speaks to the whole point that we've been making is that it's about mm-hmm. humanity. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the um, yeah. emotions, um, you know, the things that we experience, you know, how we navigate life. Like there is a commonality that's in our humanity mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you're black, if you're white, if you're whatever, like there are things that happen to us all that we can appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I, I love it. One of my favorite readers is, and I'm about to get real specific, but Miss Daisy, who yeah. is <laughs> one of my favorite readers, little, yeah. I mean, little white lady, goes so hard for you, goes so hard yeah. for Big South. Like she got the t-shirts, she's got the mugs. <laughs> like and the thing that I love about that is it it says, okay, these stories, they are for everybody. Like they are for mm-hmm. us, by us. And then when other people hear them, they're like, black folks are amazing. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, I love her. I do She's too. So I do too. But I love that about you, and I love that about your work and what it's doing, oh, and you. how you are representing us. I think it's amazing. Oh, it's the only way I know to do it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kennedy, for having me, Alexandria. I loved interviewing both of you all, and I appreciate you all for giving me this opportunity to come on this platform and chat about. What else other than Black romance? Black romance and, of course, the outstanding novelist that both of you are. We are heavily anticipating Kennedy Ryan's Real, and I can't wait to see what it does for all of us as readers and, of course, as fans. Now for a special audiobook excerpt from Kennedy Ryan's latest release, Real. Exterior, Lenox Avenue, outside the Savoy, night. Desi stands on the street, scanning the well-dressed people leaving the Savoy. Cal approaches her, holding up his trumpet case for her to see. Told you I was a musician? Huh, if you say so. I'll show you if you come with me to the radium. You've been on the track all night. Come have some breakfast. No, I ain't. She spots Tilda with a well-dressed man, headed in the opposite direction, Tilda looks over her shoulder at Desi guiltily and then shrugs. Desi glances down at the sidewalk and blinks away tears. It'd be a good time. Best music in the city. White boys show up too. Benny Goodman and Harry James came last week and best grit you ever had. Desi looks in the direction Tilda went, seeing her red dress swallowed by the late night crowd. She forces a smile and looks up at Cal. 
Did you say grits? Best in Harlem. Come on. Exterior moving shot on Cal and Desi, talking inaudibly, with the jazz music bed under the shots as they walk the few blocks to the radium club. Insert shots of Harlem nightlife, buildings lit up, Tilly's chicken house, the log cabin, the theatrical grill, well-dressed white patrons entering the cotton club, and finally ending on the entrance to the radium club. Interior, radium club, night. When Cal and Desi enter, the club is filled with smoke and people and music. A dimly lit stage sits in the center of the room, and a small band tunes up. I gotta get up there. I was waiting for a certain hostess to finish her shift, and now I'm late. Oh, you in the band? I am tonight. What y'all playing? Cal, pulling his trumpet from its case. Body and soul is the only one I know for sure. We kind of just figure it out as we go some nights. Desi starts humming Body and Soul. Oh, I love that song. You sing? For an audience of none. You sound like you can do a little something. I'm okay, but I get scared. Well, order you some breakfast, and I'll be back on our first break. Cal heads up to the stage. Time lapse of Desi eating and enjoying her pancakes and grits while Cal's band plays. Montage ends with the sun rising outside, illuminating the room. Cal into microphone on stage. Looks like we're the last ones standing. Well, I think we saved the best for last. I got a special treat for you. Turns and whispers to the band members, who nod. Making her debut right here at the Radium Club, singing Body and Soul, my very good friend who I just met tonight, Odessa Johnson. Desi gapes at him with a mouthful of grits. Don't be shy, and don't make me look like a fool up here. Come on, Odessa. The few patrons still remaining give Desi encouraging applause and wolf whistles. Desi stands up like she's headed for the stage, but dashes for the door. Cal runs, catches her around the waist, and drags her to the stage. You crazy? I can't sing. I heard you. I think you can. And you won't know till you try. Cal hands her the mic and picks up his trumpet, standing beside her. I'll be right here. And there's hardly anybody still around. What you got to lose? The first strains of body and soul begin. Desi holds the mic awkwardly, flicking nervous glances around the club. She begins haltingly and continues with growing confidence. My heart is sad and lonely For you I sigh For you That I mean it 
I can't believe it It's hard to conceive it That you turn away Romance Are you pretending Because it looks like the ending Unless I could have one more chance to prove, dear, my life a wreck you're making. You know I'm yours just for the taking. I would gladly serve. Surrender myself to you, body and soul. By the end, people are applauding, and Cal gives her a hug on stage, covering her face with both hands. Desi laughs. Thanks for listening to the Hollywood Renaissance limited podcast series with Kennedy Ryan featuring Alexandria House and Crystal Forte. Be sure to check out Flagrant, the latest release from Alexandria House. Audiobook excerpt narrated by Nicole Small. Musical performance by April Christina. The Hollywood Renaissance podcast is produced by Keisha Menefee and Olivia Stibby. For more info on the books mentioned in today's episodes or to follow Kennedy Ryan and our guests, please take a look at the show notes and find their Instagram accounts. You can find Alexandria House at Ms. Alex House, Crystal at Melanated Reader, and Kennedy Ryan at Kennedy Ryan One. Thanks again for listening.